On February 24th of this year, the world as we know it changed. Russia launched an all-out war on its neighbor Ukraine, the likes of which this type of invasion we have not seen since World War II. As we talked about earlier, we're even sending money to the churches over there to help assist them as they're caring for refugees. But as the war has dragged on, what's become strikingly apparent is that many of the Russians have no idea the war even exists. You have friends texting each other, and they're like, wait, what? There's a war in Ukraine? What? No, that's not going on, right? Many of them are misinformed. An article titled, The War the Russians Do Not See, was published by The New Yorker. It will be up on the screen. It begins this way. Pushkin Square in the center of Moscow is a traditional site of protest. Since Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, most of the square has been cordoned off with police in riot gear and National Guard soldiers in full combat gear stationed around its perimeter most of the day. On the first day of the war, police made hundreds of arrests in Pushkin Square, and on most nights since, they have netted only a handful of people, often as soon as the protesters got off the subway. At about 7.30 on Wednesday evening, three policemen in riot gear were dragging a young woman with a braid onto a police bus. A few paces behind them, three more officers dragged another young woman. Meanwhile, pedestrian traffic around the square flowed smoothly and speedily. People went in and out of the metro, the three-story H&M store. They did not stop and stare at the mute scenes of arrest. They did not seem to notice. And the not noticing did not appear to be effortful. It seemed rather that the Muscovites going about their business and the young women being arrested inhabited different realities. The protesters lived in a world where Russia was waging a brutal, inexplicable war in Ukraine, where it was bombing residential neighborhoods in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. The rest of the people in the square lived in a world where this war did not exist, where this world war did not exist. And now before we judge the Russians that were oblivious, we have to ask ourselves, which world do we live in? Now, I'm not talking anymore about this physical world, but rather the spiritual world, right? We are in a spiritual war, as we're going to see in Ephesians 6. We are in a battle. The world, all, Satan, all his forces are full attack against God, his children, and this world the consequences are eternal. But praise the Lord, God has not left us in the dark about this war. So read with me Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. We'll be in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. We're continuing our series in Ephesians. Almost there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand firm. Point number one, understand your enemy. So in the text, why do we need to put on the armor to be strong, to withstand, so that we can?
handstand. It's the logic of the text. Because we have an enemy that is greater than simply flesh and blood. We have a supernatural villain. Look with me at 6, 11 through 12 again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what the schemes of the devil. For why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. They have power. The authorities, again, talking about power, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's this reiteration of authority and power, right? Theologian Kent Hughes writes on this text, what a terrible foe we face. He is immensely powerful. He's imitating God's power and presence with his demonic host. He is evil beyond our comprehension and without conscience or principle. He is diabolically cunning, right? He has schemes and he is after us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This struggle is too much for the modern day one dimension materialist and indeed for many who think themselves Christian. Our enemy is subtle and powerful. He hates Christ. He hates God's children. He hates the church. And friends, this enemy has been on the scenes a long time. All the way back to Genesis, he reared his ugly head in the form of a serpent. In the Garden of Eden, he convinced Eve and ultimately Adam that God, his word, and gifts are lacking. They're not good. There's something better. In that moment, the people that were called to rule over creation submitted themselves to be under sin and subservient to the influences of all the powers of darkness. The world went dark. His influence is seen throughout the Old Testament as the enemies of Israel and the false prophets litter the land. You see Satan explicitly in the book of Job, right? As he goes after Job and wrecks his life. You have Pharaoh enslaving the people of Israel, the people of God, killing their babies, doing the bidding of Satan. And then we read in Isaiah, in our last sermon series, we read all about the nations of Babylon and Assyria that enslaved, murdered, and oppressed the nation of Israel. And then, when the true king steps on the scene, who has been working all things after his own will, after the counsel of his own will, all along, comes on the scene. Satan goes full attack with the most blatant attempt in the temptation account, where he tries to get Jesus to rebel against God. And as a side note, that's got to be the dumbest move ever by Satan. I mean, you're trying to get Satan to, I mean, you're trying to get Jesus to sin. I remember one time I was in a class, and we were talking about the temptation account, and we were like just thinking about it. And one, one uh, person asked the professor, so if Jesus can't sin, why did Satan, you know, try to tempt him to sin? And the professor looked at, looked at us and was like, well, he's, he's stupid. <laughs> and I thought that was a great response. That was a stupid mistake. But often he is cunning. Often he is scheming. You see, and Jesus dealt the decisive blow at the cross. The day Satan thought he had his greatest victory, God was producing Satan's destruction. See, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. Jesus crushed Satan's head, which was foretold all the way back in Genesis 3. Colossians 2.15 puts it this way. He, 
disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. So God disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to shame, mocking them by triumphing over them in Christ. And how did he do this? The previous verses tell us. And you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that legal demand being death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can we get an amen? Praise the Lord. It is nailed to the cross. So Satan's demand for our death, that legal demand, they deserve to die, is no longer heard for the Christian in the throne room of God. What, what do we hear about in Zechariah? No, Jesus looks at Satan and says, I rebuke you. You cannot say that. You cannot speak of that. Never be heard again. And earlier in Colossians, Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've got two kingdoms, the domain of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved son. Previously, we were like zombies, right? We were mindless, going about, Ephesians talks about us, how we were following the principality of the air. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This was the way we live life apart from Christ. But what did he do? He rescued us. Now, I'd imagine Satan is a little ticked off. Imagine he's losing the zombies of his domain. He hates this. He hates righteousness. He hates goodness. First Peter describes Satan as your adversary, the devil, prowling around, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And we must hold these things together. Therefore, therefore, although disarmed against Christians and on a leash because of our new position in Christ, He's still swinging as he goes down, right? It's like a boxer getting knocked out but going down swinging. Or a football team down by 70 with five minutes, but they're still after hurting the quarterback. Or a lion on a leash. And for those in Christ, he's ultimately defanged and declawed. But he can still wound. He's still dangerous. But for the Christian, he cannot fully destroy. His destruction is coming when Jesus returns. He's just trying to create... Havoc in the meantime, and take as many as he can with him. Sinclair Ferguson, a famous author and theologian, writes, Satan knows he cannot destroy our salvation, so he intacts our enjoyment of it. Read that again. Satan knows he cannot destroy our salvation, so he attacks our enjoyment of it. And then question, where do we fight the enemy of our soul? In the everyday area of our lives. Look at verse 12 again with me. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the last part, in the heavenly places. So they're cosmic, right? They're outside even this realm, but yet they come into it, as we'll see. Why? Four times it's listed, the heavenly places in Ephesians. One verse three says, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 120 says, Christ is seated in the heavenly places. 
And then 2.6 says, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. But then look at chapter 3, verse 10 with me. God is showing his manifold wisdom through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you have this picture of all of heaven watching, right? You have angels and demons, and all of them are active. The war zone becomes the church. So where's the battlefield? The battlefield is the church. The heavenly forces of darkness have a showdown with the church. The war zone is among the people of God. The battle is for their hearts and minds. Sinclair again helpfully articulates, it is, so, it is often true with every well-known passage in the Bible that we tend to know them quite apart from the context in which they are set. It's true of this passage as well. We engage in conflict with the devil in many contexts, but the specific context which gives rise to Paul's teaching here was his counsels on everyday domestic life. In the immediately preceding section of Ephesians, he has been discussing relationships between husband and wives, parents and children, masters and servants, right? We just talked about work and how that relates to the text. That was extremely helpful. Why then the radical shift to spiritual warfare and armor? But perhaps it's not so radical after all. For these are the mundane area in our lives where we are often tripped up and our usefulness hindered. He goes on to write, These basic relationships within which most of life is spent are really the greatest blessings that we can know. That is why it is here that Satan strives to undermine the goodness of God that he hates. So friends, the battlefield is the mundane. The battlefield is the mundane. It's the everyday life. It's when you wake up and lie down. It's when you interact with your spouse. It's when you're frustrated by your kids. It's when you're dealing with a hard boss. Or maybe it's when everything seems peaceful, but on the inside, inside you're numb. Therefore, we must ask the question of ourselves, are we aware of the enemy and his schemes? It would be foolish to know there's a devouring line outside, but ignore this and go outside and play or go on a jog, right? That, that wouldn't make sense. We would be aware of what is this line doing? Where is he in our neighborhood? We don't want to be attacked. So where are the areas of spiritual attack in your marriage? Right? Where is there a chink of armor missing? Where is Satan trying to go after risen hope, church? What relationships with the lost is he trying to destroy? Where are your moral boundaries being pulled in the wrong direction? Now, to be fair, there's, there's two errors we can make with spiritual warfare. First, overcredit. Everything is about spiritual warfare, right? So sit, the TV's not breaking. Oh, there's a demon in it, right? Or I've seen this in a family as well, where the dad would always talk about spiritual warfare. Everything seemed to be spiritual warfare. He, he, it was like he accredited so much power to Satan that he discredited who God is and what God's doing. And that produced fear and stability. We can't. That is the first error. However, I do not believe that's where most of us are. That's not where I tend to land when I think about spiritual warfare. The second error we make is undercredit, right? Most of us are going to struggle with the Western mindset that everything that is really real is the things that we can see, touch, feel. 
and everything else, eh, probably a fairy tale. It's all about the so-called scientific method, and this has greatly influenced the Western church. If you go into other churches across the, the world, this will not be a struggle, because their day-to-day, they live in a world that understands, even in the culture, demonic influences. They understand spiritual influences. But friends, this is no fairy tale. We've all seen the carnage of this line's work. Many of us have lost sleep, cried many tears over the things that the evil one has had his tentacles in, or has had his hands in. We've watched husbands and dads walk away. We've watched as children have fallen for the lies of the world and rebelled against God and their parents. We've seen friends run off the deep end, run after sin. So how do we grow into a mature awareness of Satan? Well, right before Peter describes Satan as a lion, he commands the church to be sober-minded and to be watchful. You see, we give Satan an open door when we mindlessly go through life. So we command to be watchful. Keep an eye on our hearts and and hearts of those around us. We're called to be looking, be attentive. C.S. Lewis in his book, um, Screw Tape Letters, sorry, I totally went blank on it. Screw Tape Letters, it's a satirical book. But it also is super insightful. It's about a greater demon talking to a lesser demon who has a person that he's kind of overseeing to tempt. And he says this. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our work is done, best done by keeping things out. Satan would like nothing more than to have a bunch of us walking around mindlessly in a battlefield, not ready for war, not suited up, have no armor on, be defenseless, right? You can picture that, a battlefield, person, civilian just walking right through it, not paying attention to what's going on. So friends, we must know the way he attacks us, your family, your church. What circumstances does he usually try to use to tempt you? What music, movies, hobbies provide a place for the battle? And these scenarios may not always be wrong, right? If you're tempted to be angry when you're hungry and tired, well, guess what? Jesus was hungry and tired, and Satan went after him in those moments. It's not the scenario that's wrong, but rather it's that we're to be aware that Satan might attack. We're to have our guard up. We're to be watchful. For me, when I'm very busy running around doing things, even good things, doing ministry things, running around and maybe I miss my quiet time and I miss another quiet time and then I'm kind of lulled to sleep and then Satan starts throwing darts, right? Why? Because I don't have my guard up. I'm not armored up. I'm not suited up. I'm not being watchful. So where are those areas in your life? He's cunning. He's evil. He's looking for those moments. He's had thousands of years to study on how to attack. If the enemy is so great, though, attacking every area of life, how do we fight him? Well, praise the Lord, God has given us the resources. So point number two, be strong and suited up. And by the way, the first point was my longest point. Don't worry, they're not always all as long as that one. 
So number two, be strong and suited up. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The three terms here in Greek for strength are the same three, actually, that Paul prayed earlier in Ephesians in chapter 1. When he prayed, what is the immeasurable greatness? And he was praying this for the Ephesians to understand. is What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? First it was a prayer, now it's a command. Imagine Iron Man going into battle, but not having a suit. Or Hulk just being the regular doctor, but not being the green man going into battle. Or Captain America not actually having the juice that made him strong and the shield that defends him. This is what it's like if we do not take up the strength of the Lord to go into war. This is not a merely human battle. We need a supernatural power for a supernatural battle. We need to be strong in the Lord. We need to take on a strength that is not our own. You can't fight this war alone. I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> we try to scheme on our own, but it never works. The good news is, right, that Christ, the victorious Christ, the one who conquered Satan and all his forces, has given you himself. He's given you the Holy Spirit. The strength that you need is yours in Christ, right? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, Paul is pulling on all the first three chapters to lead us into this battle. He's saying be strong in Christ. That word in Christ, that term in Christ is used all the time throughout Ephesians. Why? Because our identity is not our own. We are attached our identity is united to a conquering king who is victorious at the cross. You see, the same one who upholds the universe and those demonic forces with his word is the same one who dwells in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He also kind of expresses what it looks like to be strong. Right? What is this experience like? And he describes it as putting on armor. This is the outline, the flow of the text, is that we are to be strong by putting on the armor. So look with me again at verses 11 and 13. Put on the whole armor of God, not part of it, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He reiterates it, bookends the middle, that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You see, he reiterates it three times, so I think it should be important to us, right? We are to put on all the armor of God. Like a good military leader, Paul is staring the Ephesian church, he's staring Risen Hope Church and saying, suit up, guys, suit up, suit up. Take up your weapons. I don't want you to be defenseless in this war. Just as he tells us and describes the enemy that we face, he gives us the antidote. God, in his kindness, gives us the antidote. Right? We are to be strong. We are to take up 
the armor. And this isn't a take-up. I think often we think of this as a take-up the armor in that moment of attack. But this is a present, right? This is a present tense. We are to put on the armor of God so that we might be ready when the evil day comes, when the attacks happen. So this is a command for the present. You see, it's a lifelong goal to be armored up. It's not just for the moment of attack. If you run into a battle and then start throwing on your armor, it's not going to go well, right? If you survive, hopefully you do, you still want to put on the armor, but we must armor up, we must suit up before it even begins, before the temptations come. We're called to be ready in the evil day. But again, notice the promise implicit in the command. It says to put on the armor so that you may be able to stand against the schemes. And then again, that you may be able to withstand. Right? If we put on the armor and walk in God's strength, there is a promise implicit in this that we will stand. Right? Because this is God's strength. This is the victorious king who is with us. And if we're walking with him and in him, we will be able to resist the evil one. So the lie that Satan throws at you in those moments of, it's okay, you're going to give in like everyone else, is a direct contradiction to the word of God. You will and can withstand if you put on the armor, if you walk in God's strength. We are to take up the whole armor that we may be able to withstand. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Question again that we must ask ourselves is, have we suited up for the battle with God's resources? Do we put on the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes? We picked up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which we'll get into that later. But it's interesting to note that this is actually God's very armor. We went through Isaiah, the series on Isaiah, and Isaiah 59. These are the things that's described of the coming Savior that he wears. So these are tested and tried. This is tested armor. It's been tested before by Christ. Do we turn to God in his word? Are we like Jesus responding to lies with scripture truth? Do we preach to ourselves when the subtle lies start filling our head? Do we turn to prayer? when Satan's temptations come pressing in. And the third thing, third point is, withstand and stand firm. See, the goal of all this is that we withstand, but more than that, that we stand firm. And I'll I'll make that distinction as we go on. So we are to withstand as we stand firm. Verse 12, that you may be able to stand against Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand. Both of the emphasis of being attacked but standing strong. Imagine Captain America in the movies where he's taking the, you know, the machine gun full on to his, his shield and he's taking it, he's withstanding. Okay, that's withstanding the evil one. This is our call. But more than that, we are to stand firm. Imagine Captain America after he's taken all the bullets and the gun goes click. Captain America's standing there and the guy's freaking out because he's still standing firm. This is the idea, right? Resist the evil one and he will flee from you. 
right? The bad guy just takes off. He's like, oh, snap, that guy is stronger than I am. I better get out of here. That's the idea. We are to stand strong. We are to withstand so that we might stand firm. Earlier in Paul says that we are to mature. He uses a different analogy. He says that we are mature so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul was illustrating this principle in maritime terms. Now he's using combat. But the picture is clear. We're not to be movable. We're not to be shaken. This is not a call to run from battle, to see it coming on and then turn tail and run, nor imagine it doesn't exist. Not merely taking a beating, but rather being victorious through standing firm. And the Ephesian church would have been well aware of spiritual warfare. There's a story in Acts 19 that's a pretty popular story where first it starts off with Paul is going about in healing. God's using him to heal, cast out demons. All these miracles are happening. And God is getting glory in the area. And there's all this spiritual activity, right? There's a temple in Ephesus. And so you have demonic activity and you've got all this stuff going on. Well, there's these guys, the seven sons of Siva, and their title is actually itinerant Jewish exorcist. That would be an interesting gig. Um, their job, they're supposed to go cast out demons. They want to be like Paul. So they go to a guy who has a demon, and they try to cast him out. And this is the response of the demon to these guys, these lost people who don't know Christ. They're labeled Jews and not believers. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? He proceeds to jump on them, beat them up, and I'm pretty sure they fled naked. All seven of them just gone. And the thing that happened was the area didn't become fearful of Satan and his forces. You know what happened? They became fearful of God. It says the fear of God was upon the people, and many came to faith. Because they saw the greater power of God versus human weakness, right? These men were nothing. Demon beats them up, sends them out. One year, I had the idea of praying, Lord, make me this type of man. Since Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Lord, make me that type of man. What preceded was a year long of one of the worst years of my life, I would say. Uh, it was, I struggled with depression, um, temptations. I'd wake up in the morning and feel like I got punched in the stomach just from my mind rolling and emotions all over me, and I didn't know what was going on. I think it was my senior year, and I was battling. I was battling. I was standing firm, and I was, well, I was trying to figure out what was going on, and all this stuff was going on in my head, but what, what became one of the sweetest truths throughout that year? The Lord did a lot. Looking back, I would say, wow, the Lord did a lot in my heart that I had no idea was even going on, because he was active, right? He was the victorious king working his wisdom in me. But one of the sweetest truths was this. There is a command in scripture to stand firm. For you who are wavering in your mind and your hearts, who skepticism is the thing you run to, when doubts are flooding in, you don't have to entertain them, right? That is not the call. The call of the Christian is not to entertain the battle, not to mess around with the battle, not even to flee from the battle. The call is to stand 
firm. And friends, that will be the sweetest balm to your soul, is this command. Implicit in it, the ability to stand firm with the strength of the Lord. Friends, this is a great war, but we have a greater God, right? We have a God who gives us the strength that we need, gives us the armor. You see, even in the, the way this text is formatted, it starts out with God's strength, put on armor, enemy, God, and then back to armor. It, he bookends it, I think, to fix our eyes not as much on the enemy, but on God, right? God is the one who gives the strength. He gives the armor. Here's your enemy. Here's God's strength, right? It's, it's about who God is and what he's done ultimately. But we, we cannot ignore the war. We cannot ignore it. We cannot treat it like it doesn't exist. It's real and serious. And invades Sunday mornings when distractions are flying, when it's hard to get ready for church. Monday through Friday, your work. Our times on the beach, movie theater, at a friend's houses, and even our very homes. This war has no boundaries. There are no civilians in this war. Light and darkness. Men, women, and children are not on the sidelines. All are targets. And friends, we as Christians are warriors called to battle. Called to battle, to resist, to be ready, to stand firm. And friends, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the call is not to battle for you. The call is to surrender. You, according to Ephesians, are in the domain, and Colossians, are in the domain of darkness. You are falling after, as Ephesians talks about, the principalities of the air. You are following the evil one. So your call is not to battle. Your call is to surrender. But the promise and the hope of the gospel is Jesus will turn away none who run to him. He's in the business of rescuing rebels right? Us. And we rejoice in this. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Lord, we don't deserve to be a part of your church. We don't deserve to walk in your spirit. We don't deserve to be protected from the evil one, Lord. We've, we've watched as so many people um, have taken the hook, line, and sinker of the evil one, Lord, and we recognize in and our, of ourselves we will do the same in different ways. And Lord, I pray for Risen Hope Church and for the visitors that are here as well. God, would you make us a people that are strong, that are aware of the enemy, who have put on the armor, so that we are able to stand in the evil day. Lord, and even next week as we get into the details of what is this armor, what are these resources in detail, Lord, would you prepare our hearts for that sermon with this one? Would we come into it recognizing the commands, the multiplicity of the commands that we are to put on the armor? We are to suit up, not to leave it behind. God, and I pray where Satan has 
been given a foothold in this church or in any one of us, Lord, I ask that you would rebuke that. Lord, that you would strengthen that, that person, wherever that may be. Lord, for those who feel weak right now, we thank you that it is your strength that sustains us because it is the very strength of the victorious Christ who dwells in us. And so, Lord, may we rest in that truth as we go on today. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.